want to welcome everybody to Prisma Podcast Live. My name is Elliot Rabin, and this program gives a platform for people to learn in depth about innovative initiatives at work in Jewish day schools. We're going to start with a presentation about the featured program, continue with a conversation exploring the program and its wider implications, and end by fielding questions from the audience. Please send your question to me directly in the comments and I will curate them. We welcome all those who are watching this broadcast on Zoom as well as on Facebook Live and are happy to announce that more people will be able to enjoy it later on Prisma's podcast channel. For today's third episode in the series, we have the pleasure of hearing from Dr. Peg Sandell, head of school, and Barbara Cohen, director of technology and innovation, at Brandeis Marin in San Rafael, California. Their talk is titled, Creating a Culture of Storytellers, and is about how storytelling created a sense of belonging and connection among parents and all stakeholders at their school. After their presentation, Peg and Barbara will be joined by Josh Gold, who is the principal at the Hafter Middle School in Lawrence, New York, and the host of Prisma's podcast series, Startup Day School. Please welcome Peg and Barbara. Thank you, Elliot, and thank you, Prisma, for giving uh, us this opportunity. Today, we wanted to share with you a unique program that we created at our school. We call it StoryForce. We wanted to tell you both what it is uh, and why it came to be, um, and we're happy to answer questions. You know, this, this initiative was created um, because we realized that, you know, every day uh, students come home from school and they tell their parents stories from their day, things they learned, things they did, the interactions that they had with friends and with teachers. And then, of course, parents share those stories uh, about the school with their friends and family. And knowing that all of these stories are circulating out there, we asked ourselves, how could we actively create a culture of storytellers to capture these stories so that we could then share them more broadly and more intentionally? Now, the origin of StoryForce really goes back actually to 2019 um, and conversations that were happening in our marketing committee, which is a subcommittee of our board of trustees. In those conversations, which included board members, current and alumni parents, as well as leadership team members, we came to an important realization. And that was this, we came to the realization that the brand of our school is the experience that people have of the school. And so we started brainstorming ways that we could somehow capture and share that experience uh, and the many amazing stories that are happening all the time and being created all the time at any given day of school and that people share all the time. How could we capture those stories and how could we share them out? This, this was really how StoryForce was created. And it has become a group of teachers, board members, parents, and administrators. And the goal of this group working together was to really create this storytelling and story capturing culture to enable deep, authentic, and consistent connection to Brandeis Marin for the storyteller and for all of our stakeholders. 
And so broadly speaking, we wanted to, you know, preserve those wonderful memories. We wanted to capture our history and create collections of stories that we can share really forever that could link generation to generation at the school. We also wanted to strengthen our community by discovering the connections that are really hiding in plain sight um, that would allow people to not only get the most out of their Brandeis experience, but also to, to deepen their connections with one another. Of course, we wanted to create means and mechanisms to celebrate the people in our community and their milestones and to leverage all of these stories to attract new people and to draw new people into our community through admissions or through our advancement efforts. And all of this also gives us, you know, the ability to really capture sort of evidence, right, that shows just how vibrant a school community we have. And that in turn um, can be leveraged to give donors uh, more reasons and more excitement to tap into their passions and invest in the school. Of course, we also wanted to just have fun and connect and, you know, and entertain um, the parents and the folks in our community. And lastly, and this is still uh, a piece of our project that we're working on, is we wanted to build the practice of storytelling into the into the education that we're offering. Um, we see ourselves very much as, you know, a people of storytellers, um, that the Jewish people are a people of storytellers. And so there's something um, very uh, woven into um, the Jewish culture and values of our school um, that extends in a very natural and authentic way into storytelling. Barbara, maybe you could take a moment to just tell us what did StoryForce create? So StoryForce, so this is a very lofty list of goals with a lot of different facets facets to it. And um, the four major areas that we, uh, that we worked on, we're really only going to have time today to talk to you about the first two. Um, the first was a storytelling event for our adults in our community called the OSH, which you will hear and see much more about in the coming um, minutes together. Um, the second one was we actually created our own little social media separate private network known as Mishmash. We will define our terms as we go along as well. Um, but parents are able to engage in a private social network um, administered by the school, but for them to uh, connect with each other and tell their stories. Um, the two final ones we won't have time to go over today is we are actually building a database app platform. We're calling it Storym, a way to collect our stories, um, a, a taggable database of capturing all the things that happen at our school and tell our story. And finally, we're working on various ways with our teachers to both work with students to bring a culture of storytelling into the classroom and to provide windows and tell the story of their classrooms to parents in our greater community. The classroom component is still largely right teachers telling stories to parents. Um, but this small group of teachers is also working on developing strategies to help us bake storytelling into the teaching and the learning. Storim, just really briefly, uh, is this, you know, crazy sort of Hebrew English uh, amalgamation of a word, is a database archive. Briefly, it's still under development. And what really drove its creation was was the question, how do we capture all the wonderful events and moments and presentations and demonstrations of learning in Jew Jewish life that are happening you know, at our school as they are happening? And then how do we archive those in a way that is accessible and not just a sort of a junk drawer of memories? 
ultimately, these two aspects of StoryForce, the, the teacher and educational component and the database component, are part of our school's effort to help parents feel more connected to what's happening in the classroom. Um, and, and that really informs the stories, of course, that then people tell others about their uh, experiences at the school. The two most developed and active components of StoryForce are the Ash, which is Hebrew for moth, um, and the Mishmash, which is a play on uh, the Ash. And it was meant to be sort of like a, a mashup of that. Um, and those are the two we want to focus on today. Both the OSH and the Mishmash were created in partnership with parents to give them, our parent community, places to hear each other's stories and deepen the connections between and amongst our parent community. Now, planning for our first OSH event started in the fall of 2019. We set a date for an in-person event for April 2020. And of course, that date might uh, <laughs> might ring uh, in all your ears as like, oh, wow, well, that's right, when the pandemic hit. And so when the pandemic happened, of course, everyone went into lockdown and StoryForce had to reinvent itself. Um, our longer term plans for having an events and creating a network of people who were capturing and documenting everything had to get put on hold because the real need in that moment was for parents and prospectively and prospective families to feel connected during a time, as we all recall, of utter disconnection. And so this very same group that had already been thinking about storytelling as a cultural norm suddenly had to provide mechanisms to reveal our community to itself and others during the isolation of the pandemic. So Barbara, can you tell us, uh, just tell the story, how did we come up with this moth format? Well, first of all, I think one of the really unique things is that this is one of the few school committees that I've served on that really truly is a combination of parents and faculty teacher, uh, faculty members, teachers and administrators working together on a, on a new project and coming up with these ideas together. So that was really unique and special. We happen to, in our group, have both a, um, a woman who is from a radio production background, um, who is a parent and then we our drama teacher who also has an expertise in public speaking was also sitting on story force and as we kept talking about creating a culture of storytelling and and how do we share our stories and these um, impromptu moments at the end of parent meetings where you get to hear someone's story but it's just one-on-one -on -one, a light bulb literally went off and said, well, what about something like The Moth? The Moth is the well-known um, storytelling podcast and live event that's been around for years. Um, and uh, they uh, sort of became our, our format that we wanted to riff off of and borrow from. And so from that, the Brandeis Ash, which of course, Ash is Hebrew, as, as Peg said, for Moth was born. And we created our own um, event called the Brandeis Ash. Um, and in order to get ready for our first event, which was a year ago, April, um, we actually sent um, the drama teacher that I mentioned, and we can go on to the next slide, to an event that happens with um, teachers from all over the world. The Moth actually in New York City holds a teacher institute with trainings on how to teach in the classroom storytelling in the format and the, the way that the moth um, does its events. Um, but we were actually not just wanting to bring it into the classroom, we were wanting to bring it to the adults in our room. Of course, when um, our drama teacher attended, it was virtual because we were in pandemic. 
times, but she was able to pull from that a method of then beginning to um, select parents who had stories that were sharing worthy and to work with them one-on-one -on -one to help them shape their stories into five minute um, sharings uh, of their stories. And we're very, very happy that we get to share a few of those with you. We've asked permission from a, a few special folks, but um, our first event happened in April, 2020, and each participant was either a volunteer or, or self-selected, and they each had sessions to work with the teacher who had been trained in the MOTH um, methodology. And I want to introduce to you Sam, who was a story, is still a StoryForce member. But one of the ways we got the word out about the moth and to encourage people to tell stories at our event was that he told a little story with an ask at the end. So I'm going to turn it over to Sam. You know, thinking back to those first like three months of being shelter in place, I just remember the feeling of wanting to get out as much as possible. I look around my house and I would notice much more screen time and being stuck inside. And so that feeling has led us to a new tradition that we have, and that is no internet Saturday, forcing us to get outside and really start to enjoy our beautiful surroundings. Early on, this was a hike that we would do as a family. And even though the kids would sometimes whine about doing it, we would get out there and have a wonderful time. I personally have started to discover these trails more on my mountain bike which I hadn't done before the pandemic. Uh, so that's been amazing. But what's even more amazing is that you're probably experiencing these silver linings as well. And the good news is you have an opportunity now to share them with the Brandeis community. That's right. The Brandeis Osh is back. And on April 18th, we're gonna be doing a special silver lining spiel version. So come join us on April 18th for this virtual hug over Zoom and can't wait to hear all the amazing stories and silver linings that you have to share. You know, thinking back to those like, first- whoops, whoops, like the Big Moth, all of our events, all of our OSH events do have a theme. As you can tell from the one that Sam was just sharing, silver linings was the theme of one of our events. They each had a different theme that people have based their stories around. I wanna um, share with you a few more stories as well and give you a little bit of context because we've only cut out snippets from the five minutes. Next, we're gonna be hearing from Rich who actually is not only a parent at the school but he is a 20 year veteran middle school teacher. He is our science teacher. What's wonderful about the OSH is that we know Rich in our community but we don't know about his story and his parenting philosophy and his life. And so what this gives us is a little bit of a glimpse into both him and his daughter, and we get to know Rich better. One of a newborn's first check-ins for health when they're born is a hearing screening. Just um, hours after birth, they'll have that test. And it shows if the, the hearing is normal for that child or not. Our lives changed on the day that Elena's final test results came back. And those results were severe to profound hearing loss. And you can imagine the questions that would flood your mind when you are told that your child can't hear. What would her life be like? Yet, as all parents do, uh, many with their own special challenges, you keep going. So moving on for us was an interesting process. Uh, the very first thing is that I was still in a state of disbelief. 
And in Elena's first days at home, um, I, I still had to kind of test the results and, and see how loud I could be around her. And so my turn on the vacuum cleaner experiment, which Elena did not hear, uh, was not popular with my wife. And fortunately, in our 14 years of marriage, I'm pretty sure this is the only time I've actually made her cry, but it didn't go well. So again, an opportunity to know a piece of rich that we wouldn't otherwise have known. Some of our stories are sad, some of them are poignant, some of them elicit um, life lessons or, or Jewish values, um, and sometimes they're just fun. Um, and sometimes they're funny and touching at the same time. You're going to hear next from Catherine, who is such a wonderful speaker that we've actually featured her at two of our Ash events because we just love her stories and her storytelling uh, methodology. So kissing Alec Lehman was the sole obsession of my entire life when I was 13 years old in Glen Ellen, Illinois. And where I was going to kiss Alec Lehman was Lake Ellen, Illinois. So it was at this beautiful picturesque lake that I was going to kiss Alec. And it was going to be very simple. I'd steal his hat. I'd skate away from him. He would catch me. I'd hold the hat behind me. Like most 13-year-old boys, he'd lovingly sweep my hair back, hold my face in his hands, and kiss me. What could go wrong? The problem was Alec, who was a super fox, and was also kind of the genetic blueprint for um, Justin Bieber, was being chased by every 13-year-old girl. So there was no way that I was going to catch Alec Lehman. So I went to plan B, and that was I would pretend to faint and lay on the ice. And then Alec would come up, see me laying down on the ice, and of course, like all 13-year-old boys, sweep my hair back, lift my face up, and kiss me. So I slide on the ice. I'm 13. This made sense, and I pretend to faint. I open my eyes to see if Alec has seen me, and instead of seeing Alec, I see Shelly Davidson, who is a very tall girl, hurling towards me on the ground, blades first. Shelly's blades hit my face so hard that my head rocks back, and I stand up, and I'm pretty convinced that I'm going to have a fat lip. Instead, I stand up and put my hand in my face to stick my tongue out to feel the fat lip. And instead, my tongue goes through my fully lacerated face and touches my hand. Next, you're going to hear from a newer member of our community at Brandeis, but a, um, a, a member, a well-known member of the Greater Bay Area Jewish community. You are going to hear from Rabbi Sydney Mintz. So, She's going to share her story. Hello everyone. This story is dedicated to all of our gender queer and gender fluid amazing kids who are wondering if they are okay wherever they are. I am Sydney Mintz and I use she they pronouns. I actually for a period of time wanted to add we but nobody was really in favor of that. I just felt that it was an inclusive pronoun and I was an English major. And in our world today as you know just from looking on the screen people in the queer community and the general community care very much about pronouns. And because I'm queer and because I've been misgendered for over 50 years, I thought it was a good idea to be a role model and move into this century. So you can call me she or they just as long as you call me. A few years ago, a couple came into my office to talk about joining the synagogue so that their child could become a bar or bat mitzvah. They told me and our educator that Sam was not sure if they were a he 
or a she. So they weren't certain if they were going to become a bar or bat mitzvah. And what could I do for them? I told them whatever Sam decided to call it, that's what we would call it. They were delighted and they joined the synagogue. But before they left, they asked me if I was the only gender non-conforming member of the clergy at Temple Emmanuel. And I thought about it and I said, yes, I am. After they left my study, our educator said, when did you become gender non-conforming? And I said, during the meeting when they asked me. And our final story excerpt I wanna share with you, I think just really illustrates how we as a school community and all of you in your school communities know each other and connect with each other and get to know each other. But um, through this format, we're getting to know each other on a deeper level and we're revealing our truths and we're revealing things about ourselves that we may not at a glance see. So our last story is um, was, was told by uh, who, who at the time was a brand new parent to our school, Lieutenant Colonel Ben Raphael. And he, um, this is the very end of his story where he has just shared um, a very um, hard story about one of his tours of duty where he lost one of his um, men um, in an accident when he was deployed. Shortly upon returning from Iraq, I decide I'm gonna stay in the army and I'm gonna try out for the special forces or the Green Berets. And every time I, I put myself through this grueling pain of physical torture to get ready for this, this tough trial, I think when I'm, I'm running and I'm pushing myself harder and it's hard for me to breathe, I think about, hey, well, at least I can breathe. And that kind of drives, drives me to, um, to finish up the training become a Green Beret, and then take another team to Afghanistan successfully. And thankfully, no one comes back hurt or killed. And I find some type of redemption in that. So anyways, I share this story with you all, not to make you feel bad. Um, obviously, it's still, still tough for me. Um, but I share it not, not to make you feel bad, but because I think it's it's genuinely important to to hear these types of stories. Um, right now, there's I think ten percent of our adult population in America is veterans, and most of us in the Bay Area don't know any. Um, so we have this huge civil military divide, and I'd I'd ask you that rather than like feeling bad or putting veterans on a pedestal or anything like that. I'd say, take a moment, listen to their stories. I appreciate you guys bearing with me for this one. Um, and if you don't have any other veterans to, to take a moment and listen to their stories, check out some of the books or documentaries on Netflix. And um, I think it's, it's just hugely important that you get a chance to, to hear what folks have done. And um, thank you for your time. Thank all of you for um, getting to see a little glimpse into what our OSH storytelling events look like. We, we feature about 10 storytellers at any one given event. Um, Peg, I didn't know if you wanted to maybe walk us through from your head of school perspective, how the OSH has affected our school as a larger community. Yeah, thanks for sharing those stories. And I, 
um, you know, I hope you feel all of you the power. You don't know any of these people, um, and and yet there's a certain power and depth into hearing um, that deeper sense of who a person is. It adds so many layers of of texture and points of connection um, to a school community um, like ours. We we know that in many respects, you know, people come to the school for an education for their kids, um, but they stay because they develop in many ways, right? We're staying obviously for the education too, but they're staying because of the connections that they have built um, while there. And in, in many respects, uh, you know, we hear over and over again that the friendships forged during people's time at Brandeis Marin stay with them throughout their lives. Um, and what this has, what, in, so not only has the OSH become a real backbone to our school during COVID, helping, um, helping create and maintain and forge that sense of connection um, and belonging, um, it has also helped us lean into some of the values that, that we share, uh, you know, under the influence, our, our leadership team, our board, we, we've done a lot of reading of, you know, Brene Brown and the value of, of vulnerability and the courage uh, it takes to, to lean into those vulnerable spaces in our lives, knowing that what can then the connections and the meaning that can be drawn and forged out of that vulnerable space can be very powerful indeed. Um, we are also using and thinking about these powerful stories, just ordinary but yet extraordinary stories told by everyday people. Um, we have we've become quite influenced by the research of a professor at Emory University named Marshall Duke, who has looked into the into resilience and done uh, decades worth of work on, you know, looking at what makes resilient people resilient. Is there anything that we could say across age, socioeconomic, demographic lines? Is there anything about resilience? Um, that we could say is sort of a common denominator. And Marshall Duke's research has revealed that um, resilient, one thing all resilient people have in common is that they know their stories, they know their family stories, the ups and the downs. And as you heard today, you heard several stories of, you know, um, some made us laugh, some perhaps made us cry, but in each one of them, there was a little bit of an arc of, wow, this person, you know, confronted something that was challenging um, and demonstrated the resilience to come out of it. And so certainly from an educational perspective, we see storytelling as uh, helping us as a school community to build resilience in our in our students and in our faculty and in our parent community, um, but also at a time of profound disconnection, um, leveraging the power of stories has helped us to create a real culture of belonging um, in our school community. And I'm not sure if we have time. Uh, maybe we'll do a an, a, a time check. Uh, Barbara and I could go on and on. Um, we didn't get a chance to talk about mishmash yet, but I'm going to defer to one of our Prisma um, folks to see if we should go into that or leave time for questions. I think we're, thank you so much for this amazing presentation. Uh, you know, seeing those videos really makes it come alive uh, so powerfully. Um, and uh, I think we um, we're out of time for the presentation part, but hopefully the other parts of of the Ash and Mishmash and everything will uh, will come out in the in the conversation. So I'm going to hand it off now to Josh Gold for uh, an in-depth conversation. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you, Elliot. Uh, and thank you to Prisma for providing this, uh, this podcast platform or this uh, live, live, uh, live platform. Uh, this is really, really exciting for us. And this was a very, very powerful uh, program and presentation. So I have like a bunch of questions because I love, I love this stuff. And I think that increasing the degree to which stories become part of our practice in schools is such a great way for people to learn because I think like, you know, one of the misconceptions I think about pedagogy is, is historically people think that, you know, teaching is, is talking, right, uh, and, and learning is listening, right, and I think that it's really the exact opposite of that, that really the people who are doing the talking are the ones who are doing the learning, and positioning students to be able to tell their stories and articulate so much of what makes them unique and special uh, positions them to really do very, very deep internalized learning. Um, so really uh, kudos to both of you for the incredible work that you're doing. Um, we do something similar uh, at my school uh, at Hafter where students are learning about their stories. We're familiar with this research uh, out of Emory too. It's such powerful research about developing resilience and grit. Question I have is we know that when students learn their story, that there is a strong correlation between knowing it and being more gritty and resilient. Have you experienced that students learning the stories of others, other people in their community, have you noticed that any correlation in terms of student growth, social emotional learning and development to that? Have students been like, wow, I didn't realize that this other student or this parent or someone else in the community had such a rich backstory and that has increased my empathy and my appreciation that everyone has a story. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Appreciate that. And um, so excited to hear that your school and I'm sure others are really leaning into this research. Um, yeah, look, I think the the power of, of listening um, and the power of speaking one's story um, has absolutely impacted our student community. And I'll just give you one example. Um, you know, students um, you know, they bump into each other. I'm just just at the student level, right? Students bump into each other all the time. They have to navigate their social dynamics. And we've taken, this is sort of it's in a slightly different direction, but we've also taken the power of, of storytelling, speaking in the first person about my life and my experience. And we've also been able to connect it up with a lot of our, the way in which we help students regulate their emotions, uh, manage their behavior and negotiate their, their social dynamics. And so when students bump into each other, we typically engage them in, you know, in, in a piece of chuva, right? In a piece of sort of a restorative justice practice where they are listening to each other's side of the story, listening to each other's perspective and developing empathy around that. And we really believe that because our students are saturated in stories, right? They're saturated in stories from Torah and in their Jewish studies classes, they're saturated in, you know, the stories that they read in, in their literature. And now they are also saturated in stories that they are hearing in our community from other students, from teachers, from parents. And they really are able to see, even at a young age, that there is more to a person than just simply what you see. Uh, on the, ex, you know, sort of on the surface. Um, and that has helped, uh, I think, very much deepen their empathy, especially at a time in which masking and, uh, and sheltering in place um, presented barriers and obstacles to that. There, is, there are really endless, I think, possibilities to this, um, to this methodology of storytelling. 
Yeah. I would also say there's an important equity and justice piece to the sharing of stories. There is nothing that builds empathy faster than the, and brings windows into other lives than um, stories. And, you know, I, one of the parts of my many faceted jobs is that I'm involved with um, curating the, the library collection and the own voices movement of, you know, purchasing and, and selecting and curating books that are written uh, from a first person perspective and from people who have shared their lived experience through literature um, is happening in schools all over the place. And I just think that um, there's nothing to connect you to empathy and to lives outside your own um, faster than through the power of stories in the classroom. Totally agree. Totally agree. Barbara, I also just love that you color coded your library. We recently did that at my home too. And I did not realize what a difference it would make <laughs> viscerally. Uh, so yeah. Um, I wonder, I think that schools across the board can do a better job. And I think that Jewish day schools in particular are uniquely positioned to do a great job in tapping into the talents of the community, right? That there are so many talented folks in this sort of rich mosaic of communities that we pull together as these schools. And I feel like this is such a wonderful opportunity to provide a platform and a space for these talents to sort of come out and come to the service. Have you seen an enhancement of your school culture and school spirit as a byproduct of this program? Yeah, I mean, yes, but it really in particularly, and we didn't create StoryForce for the pandemic moment. It was totally conceived of prior to that and in, in kind of in the context of marketing, as I said before. Um, but what we have found is, and I'm sure all schools recognize this, that it, it can be very hard to create a sense of connection, especially when our schools are, are kind of known as these warm and nurturing communities. How do you, how do you give a new family or a new faculty member a sense of that warm and nurturing community when parents aren't allowed onto campus. I mean, parents have only the first week that parents were allowed to even be on our campus since March 13th of 2020 was Purim. Imagine that. I mean, the state of California wouldn't allow or the county of Marin wouldn't allow uh, very much in the way of parent visitors. So how are we supposed to build that nurturing community when no one can physically see each other? They don't know how tall their teachers are. They, you know, um, and so it this method, this uh, the OSH, as well as the Mishmash, the social media platform have given our parents tools and avenues to connect with one another. Think about it this way, right? When people used to come to campus for like a once a month parent association meeting, you'd have all these sort of serendipitous meetings, right? Like, or, or encounters after the parent association meeting ends, then two people randomly end up in conversation with one another. Perhaps they don't know each other and they all of a sudden find out, wow, this person's like super interesting or really funny or has this like very unusual and surprising backstory that I had no idea about. And instantly in that moment, right, a connection is made and maybe, um, and then maybe that's something that is then built off of. We lost all of that. We lost all of that due to the pandemic. And StoryForce has allowed us to you know, reaffirm and re-experience that warmth and depth of community, even at a time when we literally weren't able to see each other. And that has helped us to, to preserve our culture, which is so grounded in those personal connections. 
This leaked into parent communication as well. The weekly Friday newsletters home weren't cutting it for parents who really had never met in person their teacher or physically been inside their child's classroom. So we switched it up um, starting in the spring of, of 2020 that instead of weekly newsletters, um, we asked every teacher to send home a weekly video not only chronicling the week's events, but to try wherever possible to just reveal a little bit about themselves, not, not in a personal way, but just to, to be themselves in front of a camera talking to their parents. Um, and what we loved is we gave them some parameters, but after a couple of months of doing that, we started looking back on them and realized, oh, that really warm, emotionally connected third grade teacher, that's coming through in his videos. And that um, teacher who loves to keep the spotlight on her kids, she's done the videos where she and the kids are, are doing those weekly videos. Videos. And really, that's that was another way to tell the story of the school and connect our community was through um, moving from a text based parent communication system to a video one. I love it. Uh, you know, one of the I try to take educational leadership inspiration wherever I can get it. And I read one a great idea from uh, General Patton once. And Patton said, when it comes to battle plans, he said, I try to tell my soldiers what I want, but not how I want it or how to do it in the sense that we want to communicate vision here, right? But we don't want to micromanage the art of being a teacher. And I think that COVID was such a good example of, I think, educational leaders across the world were saying, we know we want continuous feelings of community. We know we want that to be authentic. We know we want it to be real and engaging, but we don't know how to do it necessarily. And we need everybody's help to figure this out. And I think that you saw such great ideas such as this and great practices, even though this happened, started before COVID, but became a great medium for this kind of work. Um, so in terms of the serendipity piece of it, how did you see this working during COVID? And how did you see students feeling a sense that I'm still part of this school, uh, this being a vehicle of that, um, despite the not being able to be together? So, I mean, Barbara, I don't know if you want to maybe um, answer a little bit more from the direction of what's happening with the students in the classroom. I'm happy to speak a little bit more. Osh is more of a parent storytelling um, piece, but do you have a, a snippet or a story um, from the student experience about this? Well, sure, but I think the, the, and I think a lot of schools will relate to this. We had to really think about Tefila um, and how to not only reach kids when they were all when we were all remote but also um, last year in particular where some of our kids were hybrid learning just how to build community and and do our weekly tefillah prayers and get the themes out there and so what was interesting I mean I, I don't know if that's the best example to give but it in a way it 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 tells the story of how we told stories. Uh, we started with Tefila the first couple of weeks as these highly produced pre-recorded um, events where we would have everybody log into Zoom and the singing was a pre-recorded video and people had pre-recorded an answer to a prompt and and they were beautiful. Um, and then after, after a few weeks of that, we felt like, um, perhaps it was a little cold and chilly. So then we moved to, <laughs> so then we moved to having um, every classroom live visible on the Zoom and some of the things were pre-recorded and some of them were live. 
And then we tried everything else. We sometimes would break in the middle of tefillah and go do a classroom activity. Sometimes we would have different classrooms speak live. Sometimes we would use our remote people and try to bring them in. And I just feel like that was one of those examples of um, both doing what we do as a school, bringing in people, giving them a window and telling our story um, all at the same time. I don't know if that's the best example, but that's, that's awesome. That gives me the Actually, most. It also lead, it reminds me, Barbara, that, um, you know, it, it, this really, it, it bled into so many other things. And even in the context of tefillah in preparation for our Generations Day, right, which is where we bring together all the various grandparents and grandfriends. Uh, this used to be a fully in-person event for us. Um, of course, during the pandemic, it, it turned virtual. And we realized that that allowed us to simultaneously um, engage grandparents who we would never have a chance to see. The grandparents living in Israel, the grandparents living, you know, in New York, across the country, you know, all of a sudden, all of these grandparents were able to, you know, join us for this special tefillah in celebration of them and the multi-generational connections that make us who we are. And over time, because of this storytelling, um, lens that we've got at our school, uh, we we engaged our students in sort of like capturing oral histories. And so they they created uh, interview types of questions and prompts, and they reached out to their grandparents and asked them questions about like, you know, what were some challenges you overcame as a young person? And, you know, what were the important lessons that you learned in your life? And what were the things that were important to you then that are important to you now? And then snippets of those recorded interviews um, then got incorporated into our, um, you know, into our tefillah and into our classroom experiences. And our OSH event has also become a place where grandparents will tell, we've had a grandparent come in and tell a story. And so this, this notion that storytelling, both as a pedagogy and as a community building tool, reminds us that our, our lives are so interwoven with multiple generations and um, the unique experiences, wisdom, and, um, and, and, and special messages um, of, of different generations. It's really saturated through everything from classroom to tefillah to you know, community building activities. And I'll just jump in and say that our last OSH, um, we have another one coming up in, in a month, but our last OSH had an alumni focus. And so it wasn't solely um, Brandeis alums who, who shared their stories, but uh, there were several and two of them were current teachers, people who had attended Brandeis and, and now work here. Um, and then the very last share of that was um, sort of one of our, our founders. Um, and he actually used his story segment to tell the story of Brandeis, which was actually really great because, um, you know, we, we can all locate ourselves in the, the historical timeline of this school, but to hear it all laid out as this group of people got together and then they did this and then these people joined, it was really a wonderful capper um, to hearing individual stories is to hear our collective story. That's a great, it's uh, a great, great point. So if a school is interested in bringing this type of practice to their own community, are there things that you have learned from your experience that you might recommend to avoid or something maybe you didn't do that you wish you would have done had you been able to do this again? 
Barbara, I'm going to let you take that one. Sure. We, I've been to a lot of late night meetings. I think the number one thing you can do is um, plan longer meetings at the beginning with lots of good food. Um, that will keep them coming back. That's always the good Never thing. Never bad advice. Never bad <laughs> advice. And I really, really could not urge strongly enough this um, merging of both parents and faculty in the creation of this kind of a project. That's been just such a wonderful deeply enriching thing. That being said, it is our stated intention to eventually, now that this is a more mature event, turn it over to our parent association from the event standpoint um, so that they locate the date and do the whole event planning. We don't wanna be in the business anymore of planning the event itself or even so much locating as we call them, the tellers. Um, but we do internally, you need to find one person who's going to work with the, the tellers um, to help them go from idea, or, oh, I've got a great story, to actually having a beginning, middle, and end, and strictly sticking to those time limits is, is key. And I, I would also, yeah, go ahead. I would also add that while, you know, you saw Sam's video at the very beginning where he put out sort of like a general call, like, hey, we're doing this thing, anyone who wants to tell. We have also found that making a specific targeted ask uh, to a specific person, hey, you know, we would love to hear your story really does move people into yes, because it can feel a little um, intimidating, right, to just, you know, to get in front of an audience of people you don't even necessarily know who and to tell your story. And, um, and so those those specific individualized targeted asks uh, definitely helped um, us uh, increase, help, you know, just help parents and, and faculty members overcome that sort of initial, like, oh, I'm not sure I have, my story is interesting enough. Mm. Um, yeah, and our storytellers helpful. haven't been the usual suspects necessarily. It's not necessarily the folks that are always on campus or involved in every committee. We've engaged a lot more dads than we do in some of our other activities. We've been able to engage people who send kids on the van um, with a commute who can't physically be here. So one of the wonderful things is it's it's really stretched out into our entire population. As folks, a particular students are starting to explore their story too, do you ever have to address a student who finds that they, they don't have a story that they can identify with or they have an alternative story, maybe they're, maybe they're adopted or they don't know their family history? Have you ever had to deal with anything like that? And if so, how have you? I don't really think of any child's story as being an alternative story. It's just their story. And I think a skillful teacher will draw out and invite um, their students to be vulnerable, take risks, perhaps writing privately or just between the teacher and the student. Our middle school English teachers use extensive journaling um, that is really just a conversation between the teacher and the student before actually publishing for, a, for an audience. Um, but I think writing your truth and telling your story is something that regardless of your background or story um, is something that we cultivate in all our students. Right. Have it's, you- it's also something Sorry, it's also something that's sort of modeled at our graduation. I'm sure many schools do this, but our for years, for decades, our eighth graders, you know, every single one of our eighth graders uh, tells a story um, at graduation and gives a speech about their time at Brandeis or something that was unique or poignant about themselves um, and their time at the school. And the entire school watches it. And so, you know, there's this anchored in our culture is this notion that every, every student is going to tell their story um, upon graduation 
graduation. And also Tefila, which for us is a once a week whole school gathering. I know it's different in different schools, but on that front, you know, we have our kindergartners for Purim, we had, you know, 400 people gathered and the very first people to address that entire gathering was our kindergarten class. Um, and they were the ones who stood up and sort of, you know, had a message for that community, uh, for the whole community. And the idea there is, even if you are the youngest, you know, people in the entire school community, your voice matters. And what you have to say is important and we're listening. I think that's a great point. I have just two, two more quick things. The first is on that note of kindergartners presenting in that way, have you noticed a byproduct being students having greater confidence in their ability to stand and deliver, speak publicly? And has that been an explicit focus as well of the program? Definitely. Our students um, are super confident speakers. I mean, it really is quite remarkable to see any student at any time uh, can, you know, get up in front of the community just again for Purim, because I'm, I only mention it because it's our first gathering in two years. Um, we had 160 kids read from Megillah um, and uh, for our Purim. So that's even whether it's reading from Megillah and telling the story of the Jewish people or whether it's telling their own stories, um, our kids definitely have the confidence um, to stand up. And even if they're feeling nervous, which you know we all do from time to time, they've learned to kind of push, you know, sort of push through that. Um, and I think it is a it's a it's a it's a synchronon of the of a Brandeis Marin student um, of you know high schools in the community know that Brandeis Marin students are going to be leaders. They're going to be people who are going to lean into healthy risk taking and be able to you know tell their story and and be contributors. Is that something that you explicitly teach into as part of the program, or is that organically sort of baked into your culture, or both? I think it's a meeting place. I think it is actually a meeting place between, you know, this sort of relatively new initiative of StoryForce to be super intentional about telling stories, capturing stories, and 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 sharing them out. Um, and it it has been it has reached a natural uh, touch point with our curriculum, which has always been very project based uh, and very student centered. Um, with you know giving teachers giving a lot of a place to student voice and choice, and so it was a perfect, very natural meeting point between these two you know sort of elements. Love it. And the last thing I just want to touch on is I understand that the the Ash. Uh, program, or I'm not sure if that's the right verbiage, but uh, direction, has taken a social media life of its own. I just want to understand more of how that happened and where it is now and where you see it going. So we've had such great um, feedback about the, the OSH, but it is high stakes. Not everybody's going to want to get up there and tell and prepare a five-minute story in front of an audience. Um, so we were trying to figure out a way to... Um, to have more casual ongoing smaller stories have a space within our parent community. And so it was the brainstorm of Sam, who you heard from earlier, and a couple of other parents on our story for us. Well, we have the Osh, why not extend it into a mishmash um, of stories using the Osh in the middle there. Um, and we started exploring different um, social media platforms. We found a company called Honeycomb, which is spelled like it sounds except for two Ms, which can host private social media platforms Mm. And we branded and created and launched this fall a private parent social media app um, that we've called Mishmash. And what happens is that it's a place for parents to connect about talkless things like, does anybody know where I can find a good gardener? But also we use um, 
again, taking the moth idea, we, we do story prompts known as sparks once in a while. So for example, in the fall on 9-11, one of the parents put out the prompt to all the parents saying, where were you on 9-11? It's this anniversary, you know, it was such an incredible life-changing day. Where were you and what are your memories? And then parents responded to that prompt and then commented on each other's comments. And there've been other ones about, you know, what's a favorite Passover food, everything from that to, you know, what are you doing over spring break? And it's created connection and the parent um, room leaders, the parent, the parent, uh, I'm having word recalled, the pa room parents. parents, thank you. The room parents are prodding folks with reminders about how to sign up and how to connect and that you have, you checked it lately and we've done a lot of PR around it. And it's had a high level of adoption in terms of joining. We do have a core group of posters, but we're, um, as this tool matures, we're gonna keep um, pushing it in the community as a place for parents to connect. And um, that's probably terrifying to some school folks. We do have um, administrators who are on there and have moderation abilities as well. Amazing. I thank want, you. Thank yeah, you, Josh. Um, thank you. We, we just have a few more minutes. I want to encourage any, anyone who has a question, to please put it in the chat and uh, ask just a couple more questions. First of all, um, you know, uh, this is just a, this this accomplishes so many things for your school. You know, the stories are really uh, so powerful, as you say, and have so many ramifications. And one thing is it really gives people a strong feeling of connection to the school and a sense of what the school is about. And I thought that really came out powerfully in the juxtaposition of the stories by Rabbi Mintz and Lieutenant Colonel Raphael. You know, those are stories that aren't, aren't usually, you don't usually hear together, right? Uh, the, from, from communities that we often think of as very different, although they really aren't, right? The LGBTQ community and the, uh, the you know, the, uh, the army community, the, the, the military. And I'm wondering what, what having those different kinds of stories, how that creates and enlarges the sense of what this school community is about for the people who hear it. You know, I think this notion of the community revealing itself to itself is really fundamental there, Elliot. Um, we, we have a diverse school community. And I know a lot of us have really diverse school communities, but we say that, but what, like, what do we really mean by that, right? And what are the various levels and layers of diversity? And, you know, we're, we're all living in a society right now that's highly polarized. You know, a lot of our news media, a lot of the, our socializing happens within, you know, relatively small networks of people that share a lot of common background experiences or, or um, you know, common commitments or values. And just creating spaces like Mishmash and Osh in which people can tell their stories, we can realize like, oh, wow, you know, I had no idea, you know, um, you know, you were that or, you know, that you did this or, you know, or we both did this thing. It just, it has helped to reveal the diversity of our community to itself. And I think that has created, as, as we said earlier, a, a deep wellspring of empathy for different walks of life, for different ways of being and moving through this world and recognizing that the diversity of the community is a strength. 
um, it's an asset and it becomes a point both of interest as well as a point of pride um, for all of us. Fantastic. Um, so you've talked about some of the ways that, that the storytelling reverberates in, in the classroom, among the faculty, with the alumni. Um, Another, I'm wondering if you could talk about how it's how it's impacted uh, recruitment and fundraising because those are those are areas where the those those people are professionals at telling the story of your school. Um, so how how is this like all these other stories? How is that channeled into and strengthened their work? Powerfully, very powerfully. Um, from it, I would say both from an admissions and a fundraising perspective, our school has never been stronger. We have raised, you know, more money during, um, you know, and gotten more people to invest in and see the value of a Jewish day school education in Marin County than ever before. And our enrollment is at an all time high. And I know there's been lots of study. Prisma has done studies and research on that. And so it, it can't, it's not unique to our school and it can't be solely connected to story force, but when people tell, and I'm sure school leaders will, will resonate to what I'm about to say, like the word of mouth, when, when a family member says to another, you know, a family or a friend, hey, I love Brandeis Marin for my kid and for my, my you know, for my family, um, you should send your, your kid there too. This community is amazing. That means more than anything. I could say, everyone expects me to say that because I'm the head of school or admissions director. And so leveraging these stories, which are so authentic and so not contrived. And some of them are literally 20 second little snippets. We've said to parents, hey, if your kid comes home and they have a fun story, just capture it in a video and send it on to us. And then what our admissions director has done is in her conversations with prospective parents, she'll just grab these videos and be like, oh, you're interested in basketball and art? Here are four families, you know, who are stories about people who also do those things. Or, you know, it's just been able to, um, again, add dimensionality and color and a really a voice of authenticity to our recruitment efforts. So I highly recommend um, tapping into the power of the stories that already exist in your community to get the word out about what special places your schools are. What a treasure you are providing for your school, for your community and for other schools, seeing, seeing and learning about StoryForce and the Ash and Mishmash and mm -hmm. all the permutations today. Thank you so much Peg and Barbara for a phenomenal presentation. I uh, thank everyone who's been on this uh, journey with us and please join us for the next Prisma Podcast Live on Tuesday, May 17th at the same time to hear Amanda Pagani of the Luria School in Brooklyn talk about making diversity a strength in a polarized age something that resonates very much with what we've just been talking about. So thank you. Thanks to you all for being here. And uh, I hope to see you next time. Thank you. That was phenomenal. Really can't thank you enough. So glad that we uh, 